Greetings, listeners. This is I, once again, D.B. Spitzer, here to talk to you about Black Clock Audio Tales. Yes, it is February, and that is the month of Jules Verne, and brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their cool new Highland cow slipper. It's all shaggy like a Muppet. It's like brown Muppet fur or a extra woolly Highland cow. Look fashionable. Look cool. Keep warm. Bunnyslippers.com. Hey, did you know that we're talking about Jules Verne? And did you know that you can find Black Clock Audio Tales on the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram? Mostly Facebook and Instagram these days. I've never been big on Twitter. And let's see what else. You can listen to Jules Verne stories this month on Black Clock Audio Tales, as I said. And also we will be talking about... Uh, the Cthulhu Mythos and Egyptology and Nephrim Ka. Maybe a little bit of Naraleth-hotep will sneak in there as well. All right, thank you so much. And remember, there's going to be probably something by David Heath of Dave's Corner of the Universe and eventually Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And also, we will be having probably some experts on the show talking about... Jules Verne at some point in time in this month. And let's not forget, I don't know, the best show there is. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, which is our monthly show, last Tuesday of the month. And if you want to hear more about the Cthulhu Mythos, go through our back catalog or check out pgttcm.com or go to podbean.pgttcm.com Find the RSS feed. Find the show notes. Find out where the store is and how to help support the show so we can have further episodes in the future. And let's not forget you could go to paypal.me m-e slash p-g-t-t-c-m and donate a buck or five or twenty or fifty or a million dollars and help the show grow. I mean, we're doing pretty good right now, but we could have another Beowulf month and who wants that? Not me. All right, let's get on with the show. Let's have some Jules Verne and let's go to that underground city. All right, here we go. Recording by Jacob Alden Miller The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 5 Some Strange Phenomena Many superstitious beliefs exist, both in the highlands and lowlands of Scotland. Of course, the mining population must furnish its contingent of legends and fables to this mythological repertory. If the fields are peopled with imaginary beings, either good or bad, with much more reason must the dark minds be haunted to their lowest depths. Who shakes the seam during tempestuous nights? Who puts the miners on the track of an as-yet unworked vein? Who lights the fire-damp and presides over the terrible explosions? Who but some spirit of the mine? This, at least, was the opinion commonly spread among the superstitious Scotch. In the first rank of the believers in the supernatural in the Dochart pit figured Jack Ryan, Harry's friend. 
He was the great partisan of all these superstitions. All these wild stories were turned by him into songs, which earned him great applause in the winter evenings. But Jack Ryan was not alone in his belief. His comrades affirmed no less strongly that the Aberfoyle pits were haunted, and that certain strange beings were seen there frequently, just as in the Highlands. To hear them talk, it would have been more extraordinary if nothing of the kind appeared. Could there indeed be a better place than a dark and deep coal mine for the freaks of fairies, elves, goblins, and other actors in the fantastical dramas? The scenery was all ready. Why should not the supernatural personages come there to play their parts? So reasoned Jack Ryan and his comrades in the Aberfoyle mines. We have said that the different pits communicated with each other by means of long subterranean galleries. Thus there existed beneath the county of Stirling a vast tract full of burrows, tunnels, bored with caves and perforated with shafts, a subterranean labyrinth which might be compared to an enormous anthill. Miners, though belonging to different pits, often met when going to or returning from their work. Consequently, there was a constant opportunity of exchanging talk and circulating the stories which had their origin in the mine, from one pit to another. These accounts were transmitted with marvelous rapidity, passing from mouth to mouth, and gaining in wonder as they went. Two men, however, better educated and with more practical minds than the rest, had always resisted this temptation. They, in no degree, believed in the intervention of spirits, elves, or goblins. These two were Simon Ford and his son, and they proved it by continuing to inhabit the dismal crypt after the desertion of the Dokart pit. Perhaps a good match, like every Highland woman, had some leaning towards the supernatural, but she had to repeat all these stories to herself, and so she did most conscientiously, so as not to let the old traditions be lost. Even had Simon and Harry Ford been as credulous as their companions, they would not have abandoned the mind to the imps and fairies. For ten years, without missing a single day, obstinate and immovable in their convictions, the father and son took their picks, their sticks, and their lamps. They went about searching, sounding the rock with a sharp blow, listening if it would return a favorable sound. So long as the soundings had not been pushed to the granite of the primary formation, the Fords were agreed that the search, unsuccessful today, might succeed tomorrow, and that it ought to be resumed. They spent their whole life in endeavoring to bring Aberfoyle back to its former prosperity. If the father died before the hour of success, the son was to go on with the task alone. It was during these excursions that Harry was more particularly struck by certain phenomena, which he vainly sought to explain. Several times, while walking along some narrow cross-alley, he seemed to hear sounds similar to those which would be produced by violent blows of a pickaxe against the wall. Harry hastened to seek the cause of this mysterious work. The tunnel was empty. The light from the young miner's lamp, thrown on the wall, revealed no trace of any recent work with pick or crowbar. Harry would then ask himself if it was not the effect of some acoustic illusion, or some strange and fantastic echo. At other times, on suddenly throwing a bright light into a suspicious-looking cleft in the rock, he thought he saw a shadow. He rushed forward. Nothing, and there was no opening to permit a human being to evade his pursuit. 
Twice in one month, Harry, whilst visiting the west end of the pit, distinctly heard distant reports, as if some miner had exploded a charge of dynamite. The second time, after many careful researches, he found that a pillar had just been blown up. By the light of his lamp, Harry carefully examined the place attacked by the explosion. It had not been made in a simple embankment of stones, but in a mass of schist, which had penetrated to this depth in the coal stratum. Had the object of the explosion been to discover a new vein, or had someone wished simply to destroy this portion of the mine? Thus he questioned, and when he made known this occurrence to his father, neither could the old overman nor he himself answer the question in a satisfactory way. "'It is very queer,' Harry often repeated. "'The presence of an unknown being in the mind seems impossible, and yet there can be no doubt about it. Does someone besides ourselves wish to find out if a seam yet exists? Or rather, has he attempted to destroy what remains of the Aberfoyle mines?' But for what reason? I will find that out if it should cost me my life. A fortnight before the day on which Harry Ford guided the engineer through the labyrinth of the Dokot pit, he had been on the point of attaining the object of his search. He was going over the southwest end of the mine, with a large lantern in his hand. All at once it seemed to him that a light was suddenly extinguished, some hundred feet before him at the end of a narrow passage cut obliquely through the rock. He darted forward. His search was in vain. As Harry would not admit a supernatural explanation for a physical occurrence, he concluded that certainly some strange being prowled about in the pit. But whatever he could do, searching with the greatest care, scrutinizing every crevice in the gallery, he found nothing for his trouble. If Jack Ryan and the other superstitious fellows in the mine had seen these lights, they would, without fail, have called them supernatural. But Harry did not dream of doing so, nor did his father. And when they talked over these phenomena, evidently due to a physical cause, My lad, the old man would say, we must wait. It will all be explained some day. However, it must be observed that hitherto neither Harry nor his father had ever been exposed to any act of violence. If the stone which had fallen at the feet of James Starr had been thrown by the hand of some ill-disposed person, it was the first criminal act of that description. James Starr was of opinion that the stone had become detached from the roof of the gallery, but Harry would not admit of such a simple explanation. According to him, the stone had not fallen, it had been thrown, for otherwise, without rebounding, it could never have described a trajectory as it did. Harry saw in it a direct attempt against himself and his father, or even against the engineer. End of chapter 5 Recording by Richard Kilmer The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 6 Simon Ford's Experiment The old clock in the cottage struck one as James Starr and his two companions went out. A dim light penetrated through the ventilating shaft in the glade. Harry's lamp was not necessary here, but it would be very soon of use, for the old overman was about to conduct the engineer to the very end of the Dockhart pit. After following the principal gallery for a distance of two miles, the three explorers, for, as will be seen, this was a regular exploration, 
arrived at the entrance of a narrow tunnel. It was like a nave, the roof of which rested on woodwork, covered with white moss. It followed very nearly the line traced by the course of the river Forth, fifteen hundred feet above. "'So we are going to the end of the last vein,' said James Starr. "'Aye, you know the mine well still.' "'Well, Simon,' returned the engineer, "'it will be difficult to go farther than that, if I don't mistake.' "'Yes, indeed, Mr. Starr. "'That was where our picks tore out the last bit of coal in the seam. "'I remember it as if it were yesterday. "'I myself gave that last blow, "'and it re-echoed in my heart more dismally than on the rock. "'Only sandstone and schist were round us after that, "'and when the truck rolled toward the shaft, I followed, with my heart as full as though it were a funeral. It seemed to me that the soul of the mine was going with it. The gravity with which the old man uttered these words impressed the engineer, who was not far from sharing his sentiments. They were those of the sailor who leaves his disabled vessel, of the proprietor who sees the house of his ancestors pulled down. He pressed Ford's hand, but now the latter sees that of the engineer, and wringing it. That day we were all of us mistaken, he exclaimed. No, the old mine was not dead. It was not a corpse that the miners abandoned. And I dare to assert, Mr. Starr, that his heart beats still. Speak, Ford. Have you discovered a new vein? cried the engineer, unable to contain himself. I know you have. Your letter could mean nothing else. Mr. Starr, said Simon Ford, I did not wish to tell any man but yourself. And you did quite right, Ford. But tell me how, by what signs are you sure? Listen, sir, resumed Simon. It is not a seam that I have found. What is it, then? Only positive proof that such a seam exists. And the proof? Could fire damp issue from the bowels of the earth if coal was not there to produce it? No, certainly not, replied the engineer. No coal, no fire damp. No effects without a cause, just as no smoke without fire. And have you recognized the presence of light carbonated hydrogen? An old miner could not be deceived, answered Ford. I have met with our old enemy, the fire damp. But suppose it was another gas, said Starr. Fire damp is almost without smell and colorless. It only really betrays its presence by an explosion. Mr. Starr, said Simon Ford, Will you let me tell you what I have done? Harry has once or twice observed something remarkable in his excursions to the west end of the mine. Fire, which suddenly went out, sometimes appeared along the face of the rock or on the embankment of the further galleries. How those flames were lighted, I could not and cannot say. But they were evidently owing to the presence of fire damp. And to me, fire damp means a vein of coal. "'Did not these fires cause any explosion?' asked the engineer quickly. "'Yes, little partial explosions,' replied Ford. "'Such as I used to cause myself when I wished to ascertain the presence of fire-damp.' "'Do you remember how formerly it was the custom to try to prevent explosions "'before our good genius, Humphrey Davy, invented his safety-lamp?' "'Yes,' replied James Starr. "'You mean what the monk, as the men called him, used to do?' but I have never seen him in the exercise of his duty. Indeed, Mr. Starr, you are too young, in spite of your five and fifty years, 
to have seen that. But I, ten years older, often saw the last monk working in the mine. He was called so because he wore a long robe like a monk. His proper name was the fireman. At that time, there was no other means of destroying the bad gas but by dispersing it in little explosions before its buoyancy had collected it into two great quantities in the height of the galleries. The monk, as we called him, with his face masked, his head muffled up, all his body tightly wrapped in a thick felt coat, crawled along the ground. He could breathe down there, where the air was pure, and, with his right hand, he waved above his head a blazing torch. When the fire damp had accumulated in the air, so as to form a detonating mixture, the explosion occurred without being fatal, and, by often renewing this operation, catastrophes were prevented. Sometimes the monk was injured or killed in his work, then another took his place. This was done, in all minds, until the Davy lamp was universally adopted. But I knew the plan, and by its means I discovered the presence of fire damp, and consequently that of a new seam of coal in the Dockhart pit. All that the overman had related of the so-called monk, or fireman, was perfectly true. The air in the galleries of mines was formerly always purified in the way described. Fire damp, marsh gas, or carbureted hydrogen is colorless, almost scentless. It burns with a blue flame and makes respiration impossible. The miner could not live in a place filled with this injurious gas any more than one could live in a gasometer full of common gas. Moreover, fire damp, as well as the latter, a mixture of inflammable gases, forms a detonating mixture as soon as the air unites with it in a proportion of eight and perhaps even five to the hundred. When this mixture is lighted by any cause, there is an explosion, almost always followed by a frightful catastrophe. As they walked on, Simon Ford told the engineer all that he had done to attain his object, how he was sure that the escape of fire damp took place at the very end of the farthest gallery in its western part, because he had provoked small and partial explosions, or rather little flames, enough to show the nature of the gas, which escaped in a small jet, but with a continuous flow. An hour after leaving the cottage, James Starr and his two companions had gone a distance of four miles. The engineer, urged by anxiety and hope, walked on without noticing the length of the way. He pondered over all that the old miner had told him, and mentally weighed all the arguments which the latter had given in support of his belief. He agreed with him in thinking that the continued emission of carbureted hydrogen certainly showed the existence of a new coal seam, if it had been merely a sort of pocket full of gas, as is sometimes found amongst the rock, it would soon have been empty, and the phenomenon have ceased. But far from that, according to Simon Ford, the fire damp escaped incessantly, and from that fact the existence of an important vein might be considered certain. Consequently, the riches of the Dockhart pit were not entirely exhausted. The chief question now was whether this was merely a vein which would yield comparatively little, 
or a bed occupying a large extent. Harry, who preceded his father and the engineer, stopped. "'Here we are,' exclaimed the old miner. "'At last, thank heaven. "'You are here, Mr. Starr, and we shall soon know.' The old overman's voice trembled slightly. "'Be calm, my man,' said the engineer. "'I am as excited as you are, but we must not lose time.' The gallery at this end of the pit widened into a sort of dark cave, no shaft had been pierced in this part, and the gallery, bored into the bowels of the earth, had no direct communication with the surface of the earth. James Starr, with intense interest, examined the place in which they were standing. On the walls of the cavern, the marks of the pick could still be seen, and even holes in which the rock had been blasted, near the termination of the working. The shift was excessively hard, and it had not been necessary to bank up the end of the tunnel, where the work had come to an end. There the vein had failed, between the schist and the tertiary sandstone. From this very place had been extracted the last piece of coal from the Dockhart pit. We must attack the dike, said Ford, raising his pick, for at the other side of the break, at more or less depth, we shall assuredly find the vein, the existence of which I assert. "'And was it on the surface of these rocks "'that you found out the fire-damp?' asked James Starr. "'Just there, sir,' returned Ford. "'And I was able to light it only by bringing my lamp "'near to the cracks in the rock. "'Harry has done it as well as I.' "'At what height?' asked Starr. Ten feet from the ground,' replied Harry. "'James Starr had seated himself on a rock. "'After critically inhaling the air of the cavern, "'he gazed at the two miners.' almost as if doubting their words, decided as they were. In fact, carbureted hydrogen is not completely scentless, and the engineer, whose sense of smell was very keen, was astonished that it had not revealed the presence of the explosive gas. At any rate, if the gas had mingled at all with the surrounding air, it could only be in a very small stream. There was no danger of an explosion, and they might, without fear, open the safety lamp to try the experiment, just as the old miner had done before. What troubled James Starr was, not least too much gas mingled with the air, but least there should be little or none. Could they have been mistaken, he murmured. No, these men know what they are about, and yet... He waited, not without some anxiety, until Simon Ford's phenomenon should have taken place. But just then, it seemed that Harry, like himself, had remarked the absence of the characteristic odor of fire damp, for he exclaimed in an altered voice, Father, I should say the gas was no longer escaping through the cracks. No longer, cried the old miner, and pressing his lips tight together, he snuffed the air several times. Then, all at once, with a sudden movement, "'Hand me your lamp, Harry,' he said. "'Ford took the lamp with a trembling hand. "'He drew off the wire gauze case which surrounded the wick, "'and the flame burned in the open air. "'As they had expected, there was no explosion. "'But what was more serious, "'there was not even the slight crackling "'which indicates the presence of a small quantity of fire damp. "'Simon took the stick which Harry was holding, "'fixed his lamp to the end of it, and raised it high above his head, up to where the gas, by reason of its buoyancy, would naturally accumulate. 
The flame of the lamp, burning straight and clear, revealed no trace of the carbureted hydrogen. Close to the wall, said the engineer. Yes, responded Ford, carrying the lamp to that part of the wall at which he and his son had, the evening before, proved the escape of gas. The old miner's arm trembled whilst he tried to hoist the lamp up. Take my place, Harry, said he. Harry took the stick and successfully presented the lamp to the different fissures in the rock. But he shook his head, for of that slight crackling peculiar to escaping fire damp, he heard nothing. There was no flame. Evidently, not a particle of the gas was escaping through the rock. Nothing, cried Ford, clenching his fists with a gesture of anger rather than disappointment. A cry escaped Harry. What's the matter? asked Starr quickly. Someone has stopped up the cracks in the schist. Is that true? exclaimed the old miner. Look, father, Harry was not mistaken. The obstruction of the fissures was clearly visible by the light of the lamp. It had been recently done with lime, leaving on the rock a long whitish mark, badly concealed with coal dust. It's he, exclaimed Harry. It can only be he. He, repeated James Starr in amazement. Yes, returned the young man. That mysterious being who haunts our domain, for whom I have watched a hundred times without being able to get at him. The author, we may now be certain, of that letter which was intended to hinder you from coming to see my father, Mr. Starr, and who finally threw that stone at us in the gallery of the Yarrow Shaft. Ah, there's no doubt about it. There is a man's hand in all that. Harry spoke with such energy that conviction came instantly and fully to the engineer's mind. As to the old overman, he was already convinced. Besides, there they were in the presence of the undeniable fact, the stopping up of cracks through which gas had escaped freely the night before. Take your pick, Harry, cried Ford. Mount on my shoulders, my lad. I'm still strong enough to bear you. The young man understood in an instant. His father propped himself up against the rock. Harry got upon his shoulders, so that with his pick he could reach the line of the fissure. Then, with quick, sharp blows, he attacked it. Almost directly afterwards, a slight sound was heard, like champagne escaping from a bottle, a sound commonly expressed by the word puff. Harry again seized his lamp and held it to the opening. There was a slight report, and a little red flame, rather blue at its outline, flickered over the rock like a will-o'-the-wisp. Harry leaped to the ground, and the old overman, unable to contain his joy, grasped the engineer's hands, exclaiming, Hurrah! Hurrah! Hurrah, Mr. Starr! The fire damp burns. The vein is there. End of chapter 6 Recording by Richard Kilmer Rio Medina, Texas. BrandonMarafa.com The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 7 The old overman's experiment had succeeded. Fire damp, it is well known, is only generated in coal seams. Therefore, the existence of a vein of precious combustible could no longer be doubted. As to its size and quality, that must be determined later. Yes, thought James Starr. Behind that wall lies a carboniferous bed, undiscovered by our soundings. 
It is vexatious that all the apparatus of the mine deserted for ten years must be set up anew. Never mind. We have found the vein which was thought to be exhausted, and this time it shall be worked to the end. Well, Mr. Starr, asked Ford, what do you think of our discovery? Was I wrong to trouble you? Are you sorry to have paid this visit to the Dockard Pit? No, no, my friend, answered Starr. We have not lost our time, but we shall be losing it now if we do not return immediately to the cottage. Tomorrow we will come back here. We will blast this wall with dynamite. We will lay open the new vein, and after a series of soundings, if the seam appears to be large, I will form a new Aberfoyle company to the great satisfaction of the old shareholders. Before three months have passed, the first corves full of coal will have been taken from the new vein. Well said, sir, cried Simon Ford. The old mine will grow young again like a widow who remarries. The bustle of the old days will soon begin with the blows and the pick and the mattock. Blasts of powder, rumbling of the wagons, neighing of the horses, creaking of the machines. I shall see it all again. I hope, Mr. Starr, that you will not think me too old to resume my duties of overman. No, Simon. No, indeed. You wear better than I do, my old friend. And, sir, you shall be our viewer again. May the new working last for many years, and pray heaven I shall have the consolation of dying without seeing the end of it. The old miner was overflowing with joy. James Starr fully entered into it, but he let Ford rave for them both. Harry alone remained thoughtful. To his memory recurred the succession of singular, inexplicable circumstances attending the discovery of the new bed. It made him uneasy about the future. An hour afterwards, James Starr and his two companions were back in the cottage. The engineer supped with good appetite, listening with satisfaction to all the plans unfolded by the old overman, and had it not been for his excitement about the next day's work, he would never have slept better than in this perfect stillness of the cottage. The following day, after a substantial breakfast, James Starr, Simon Ford, Harry, and even Madge herself took the road already traversed the day before. All looked like regular miners. They carried different tools, and some dynamite with which to blast the rock. Harry, besides a large lantern, took a safety lamp, which would burn for twelve hours. It was more than was necessary for the journey there and back, including the time for the working, supposing a working was possible. To work! To work! shouted Ford. When the party reached the further end of the passage, and he grasped a heavy crowbar and brandished it. Stop one instant, said Star. Let us see if any change has taken place, and if the fire damp still escapes through the crevices. You are right, Mr. Starr, said Harry. Whoever stopped it up yesterday may have done it again today. Madge, seated on a rock, carefully observed the excavation and the wall which was to be blasted. It was found that everything was just as they left it. The crevices had undergone no alteration. The carbureted hydrogen still filtered through, though in a small stream which was no doubt because it had had a free passage since the day before. As the quantity was so small, it could not have formed an explosive mixture with the air inside. Besides, the air grew purer by rising to the heights of the Dockert pit and to the fire damp, spreading through the atmosphere. It would not be strong enough to make any explosion. To work, then, repeated Ford, and soon the rock flew in splinters under his skillful blows. The break was chiefly composed of pudding stone, interspersed with sandstone and schist, such as is most often met between the coal veins. 
James Starr picked up some of the pieces and examined them carefully, hoping to discover some trace of coal. Starr having chosen the place where the holes were to be drilled, they were rapidly bored by Harry. Some cartridges of dynamite were put into them. As soon as the long, tarred safety match was laid, it was lighted on level with the ground. James Starr and his companions then went off to some distance. "'Oh, Mr. Starr,' said Simon Ford, a prey to agitation, which he did not attempt to conceal. "'Never, no, never has my old heart beaten so quick before. I am longing to get at that vein.' "'Patience, Simon,' responded the engineer. "'You don't mean to say that you think you are going to find a passage already open behind that dike?' "'Excuse me, sir,' answered the old overman. "'But of course I think so. "'If there was good luck in the way Harry and I discovered this place, "'why shouldn't the good luck go on?' "'As he spoke came the explosion. "'A sound as of thunder rolled through the labyrinth of subterranean galleries. "'Star, Madge, Harry, and Simon Ford hastened towards the spot. "'Mr. Star! Mr. Star!' shouted the overman. "'Look! The door's broken open!' Ford's comparison was justified by the appearance of an excavation, the depth of which could not be calculated. Harry was about to spring through the opening, but the engineer, though excessively surprised to this cavity, held him back. Allow time for the air to get in there to get pure, he said. Yes, beware of foul air, said Simon. A quarter of an hour was passed in anxious waiting. The lantern was then fastened to the end of a stick and introduced into the cave, where it continued to burn with unaltered brilliancy. "'Now then, Harry, go,' said Star, "'and we will follow you.' The opening made by the dynamite was sufficiently large to allow a man to pass through. Harry, lamp in hand, entered unhesitatingly and disappeared in the darkness. His father, mother, and James Star waited in silence. A minute, which seemed too much longer, passed. Harry did not reappear, did not call. Gazing into the opening, James Starr could not even see the light of his lamp, which ought to have illuminated the dark cavern. Had the ground suddenly given way under Harry's feet? Had the young miner fallen into some crevice? Could his voice no longer reach his companions? The old overman, dead to their remonstrances, was about to enter the opening, when a light suddenly appeared, dim at first, but gradually growing brighter, and Harry's voice was heard shouting, Come, Mr. Star! Come, Father! The road to New Eberfoyle is open! If by some superhuman power, engineers could have raised in a block a thousand feet thick all that portion of the terrestrial crust which supports the lakes, rivers, gulfs, and territories of the countries of Stirling, Dumberton, and Renfrew, they would have found under that enormous lid an immense excavation to which but one other in the world can be compared. The celebrated Mammoth Caves of Kentucky. This excavation was composed of several hundred divisions of all sizes and shapes. It might be called a hive with numberless ranges of cells capriciously arranged, but a hive on a vast scale. And which, instead of bees, might have lodged all the ichthyosauri, megatheriums, and pterodactyls of the geological epoch. A labyrinth of galleries, some higher than the most lofty cathedrals, others like cloisters, narrow and winding, these following a horizontal line, those on an incline or running obliquely in all directions, 
connected the caverns and allowed free communication between them. The pillars sustaining the vaulted roofs, whose curves allowed of every style, the massive walls between the passages, the naves themselves in this layer of secondary formation, were composed of sandstone and schistous rocks. But slightly packed between those useless strata ran valuable veins of coal, as if the black blood of this strange mine had circulated through their tangled network. These fields extended 40 miles north and south and stretched even under the Caledonian Canal. The importance of this bed could not be calculated until after soundings, but it would certainly surpass those of Cardiff or Newcastle. We may add that the working of this mine would be singularly facilitated by the fantastic depositions of the secondary earths, for by an unaccountable retreat of the mineral manor at the geological epoch, when the mass was solidifying, nature had already multiplied the galleries and tunnels of new Aberfoyle. Yes, nature alone. It might at first have been supposed that some works abandoned for centuries had been discovered afresh. Nothing of the sort. No one would have deserted such riches. Human termites had never gnawed away this part of the Scottish subsoil. Nature herself had done it all. But, we repeat, it could be compared to nothing but the celebrated mammoth caves, which, in an extent of more than 20 miles, contained 226 avenues, 11 lakes, 6 rivers, 8 cataracts, 32 unfathomable wells, and 57 domes, some of which are more than 450 feet in height, like these caves. New Aberfoyle was not the work of men, but the work of the Creator. Such was this new domain of matchless wealth, the discovery of which belonged entirely to old Overman. Ten years sojourn in the deserted mine, an uncommon pertinency in research, perfect faith, sustained by a marvelous mining instinct. All these qualities together led him to succeed, where so many others had failed. Why had the soundings made under the direction of James Starr during the last years of the working stopped just at that limit? On the very frontier of the new mine? That was all chance, which takes great part in researches of this kind. However that might be, there was, under the Scottish subsoil, what might be called a subterranean county, which, to be habitable, only needed the rays of the sun, or, for want of that, the light of a special planet. Water had collected in various hollows, forming vast ponds, or rather lakes larger than Loch Katrin, lying just above them. Of course, the waters of these lakes had no movement or currents or tides. No old castle was reflected there. No birch or oak trees waved on their banks. And yet, these deep lakes whose mirror-like surface was never ruffled by a breeze, would not be without the charm of light of some electric star, and, connected by a string of canals, would well complete the geography of this strange domain. Although unfit for any vegetable production, the place could be inhabited by a whole population. And who knows but that in the steady temperature, in the depths of the mines of Aberfoyle, as well in those of Newcastle, Aloha, or Cardiff, 
when their contents shall have been exhausted. Who knows but that the poorer classes of Great Britain will someday find a refuge. End of chapter 7 Recording by Brandon Rafa BrandonRafa.com Recording by Richard Kilmer The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 8 Exploring At Harry's call, James Starr, Madge, and Simon Ford entered through the narrow orifice which put the Dockhart pit in communication with the new mine. They found themselves at the beginning of a tolerably wide gallery. One might well believe that it had been pierced by the hand of man, that the pick and mattock had emptied it in the working of a new vein. The explorers questioned whether, by a strange chance, they had not been transported into some ancient mine, of the existence of which even the oldest miners in the county had ever known. No, it was merely that the geological layers had left this passage when the secondary earths were in course of formation. Perhaps some torrent had formerly dashed through it, but now it was as dry as if it had been cut some thousand feet lower, through granite rocks. At the same time, the air circulated freely, which showed that certain natural vents placed it in communication with the exterior atmosphere. This observation made by the engineer was correct, and it was evident that the ventilation of the new mine would be easily managed. As to the fire damp, which had lately filtered through the schist, it seemed to have been contained in a pocket now empty, and it was certain that the atmosphere of the gallery was quite free from it. However, Harry prudently carried only the safety lamp, which would ensure light for twelve hours. James Starr and his companions now felt perfectly happy. All their wishes were satisfied. There was nothing but coal around them. A sort of emotion kept them silent. Even Simon Ford restrained himself. His joy overflowed, not in long phrases, but in short ejaculations. It was perhaps imprudent to venture so far into the crypt, who, they never thought of how they were to get back. The gallery was practicable, not very winding. They met with no noxious exhalations, nor did any chasm bar the path. There was no reason for stopping for a whole hour. James Starr, Madge, Harry, and Simon Ford walked on, though there was nothing to show them what was the exact direction of this unknown tunnel. And they would no doubt have gone further still, if they had not suddenly come to the end of the wide road which they had followed since their entrance into the mine. The gallery ended in an enormous cavern, neither the height nor the depth of which could be calculated. At what altitude arched the roof of this excavation? At what distance was its opposite wall? The darkness totally concealed, but by the light of the lamp the explorers could discover that its dome covered a vast extent of still water, pond, or lake, whose picturesque rocky banks were lost in obscurity. "'Halt!' exclaimed Ford, stopping suddenly. 
Another step, and perhaps we shall fall into some phantomless pit. Let us rest a while, then, my friends, returned the engineer. Besides, we ought to be thinking of returning to the cottage. Our lamp will give light for another ten hours, sir, said Harry. Well, let us make a halt, replied Starr. I confess my legs have need of a rest. And you, Madge, don't you feel tired after so long a walk? Not over much, Mr. Starr, replied the sturdy Scotchwoman. We have been accustomed to explore the old Aberfoyle mine for whole days together. Tired? Nonsense, interrupted Simon Ford. Madge could go ten times as far, if necessary. But once more, Mr. Starr, wasn't my communication worth your trouble in coming to hear it? Just dare to say no, Mr. Starr. Dare to say no. Well, my old friend, I haven't felt so happy for a long while, replied the engineer. The small part of this marvelous mine that we have explored seems to show that its extent is very considerable, at least in length. In width and depth, too, Mr. Starr, returned Simon Ford. That we shall know later. And I can answer for it. Trust to the instinct of an old miner. It has never deceived me. I wish to believe you, Simon, replied the engineer, smiling. As far as I can judge from this short exploration, we possess the elements of a working which will last for centuries. Centuries? exclaimed Simon Ford. I believe you, sir. A thousand years and more will pass before the last bit of coal is taken out of our new mine. Heaven grant it, returned Starr. As to the quality of the coal which crops out of these walls, Superb, Mr. Starr, superb, answered Ford. Just look at it yourself. And so saying, with his pick, he struck off a fragment of the black rock. Look, look, he repeated, holding it close to his lamp. The surface of this piece of coal is shining. We have here fat coal, rich in bituminous matter, and see how it comes in pieces, almost without dust. Ah, Mr. Starr, twenty years ago this seam would have entered into a strong competition with Swansea and Cardiff. Well, stokers will quarrel for it still, and if it costs little to extract it from the mine, it will not sell at a less price outside. Indeed, said Madge, who had taken the fragment of coal and was examining it with an air of a connoisseur. That's good quality of coal. Carry it home, Simon. Carry it back to the cottage. I want this first piece of coal to burn under our kettle. Well said, wife, answered the old overman, and you shall see that I am not mistaken. Mr. Starr, asked Harry, have you any idea of the probable direction of this long passage which we have been following since our entrance into the new mine? No, my lad, replied the engineer. With a compass, I could perhaps find out its general bearing, but without a compass, I am here like a sailor in open sea, in the midst of fogs, when there is no sun by which to calculate his position. No doubt, Mr. Starr, replied Ford, but pray don't compare our position with that of the sailor, who has everywhere and always an abyss under his feet. We are on firm ground here, and need never be afraid of foundering. I won't tease you then, old Simon, answered James Starr. Far be it from me, even in jest, to depreciate the new Aberfoyle mine by an unjust comparison. 
I only meant to say one thing, and that is that we don't know where we are. We are in the subsoil of the county of Sterling, Mr. Starr, replied Simon Ford, and that I assert as if... Listen, said Harry, interrupting the old man. All listened, as the young miner was doing. His ears, which were very sharp, had caught a dull sound, like a distant murmur. His companions were not long in hearing it themselves. It was above their heads, a sort of rolling sound, in which, though it was so feeble, the successive crescendo and diminuendo could be distinctly heard. All four stood for some minutes, their ears on the stretch, without uttering a word. All at once Simon Ford exclaimed, Well, I declare, are trucks already running on the rails of New Aberfoyle? Father, replied Harry, it sounds to me just like the noise made by waves rolling on the seashore. We can't be under the sea, though, cried the old overman. No, said the engineer, but it is not impossible that we should be under Loch Katrin. The roof cannot have much thickness just here, if the noise of the water is perceptible. Very little indeed, answered James Starr, and that is the reason this cavern is so huge. You must be right, Mr. Starr, said Harry. Besides, the weather is so bad outside, resumed Starr, that the waters of the loch must be as rough as those of the Firth of Forth. Well, what does it matter after all, returned Simon Ford. The seam won't be any the worse because it is under a loch. It would not be the first time that coal has been looked for under the very bed of the ocean. When we have to work under the bottom of the Caledonian Canal, where will be the harm? Well said, Simon, cried the engineer, who could not restrain a smile at the overman's enthusiasm. Let us cut our trenches under the waters of the sea. Let us bore the bed of the Atlantic like a strainer. Let us with our picks join our brethren of the United States through the subsoil of the ocean. Let us dig into the center of the globe if necessary to tear out the last scrap of coal. Are you joking, Mr. Starr? asked Ford, with a pleased but slightly suspicious look. I'm joking, old man? No. But you are so enthusiastic that you carry me away into the regions of impossibility. Come, let us return to the reality, which is sufficiently beautiful. Leave our picks here, where we may find them another day, and let us take the road back to the cottage. Nothing more could be done for the time. Later, the engineer, accompanied by a brigade of miners supplied with lamps and all necessary tools, would resume the exploration of New Aberfoyle. It was now time to return to the Dockard pit. The road was easy, the gallery running nearly straight through the rock up to the orifice opened by the dynamite, so there was no fear of them losing themselves. But as James Starr was proceeding towards the gallery, Simon Ford stopped him. Mr. Starr, said he, you see this immense cavern, this subterranean lake, whose waters bathe this strand at our feet? Well, it is to this place I mean to change my dwelling. Here I will build a new cottage, and if some brave fellows will follow my example, before a year is over, there will be one town more inside Old England. James Starr, smiling approval of Ford's plans, pressed his hand, and all three, preceding Madge, 
re-entered the gallery on their way back to the Dockhart pit. For the first mile, no incident occurred. Harry walked first, holding his lamp above his head. He carefully followed the principal gallery, without ever turning aside into the narrow tunnels which radiated to the right and left. It seemed as if the returning was to be accomplished as easily as the going, when an unexpected accident occurred which rendered the situation of the explorers very serious. Just at a moment when Harry was raising his lamp, there came a rush of air, as if caused by the flapping of invisible wings. The lamp escaped from his hands, fell on the rocky ground, and was broken to pieces. James Starr and his companions were suddenly plunged into absolute darkness. All of the oil of the lamp was spilt, and it was of no further use. "'Well, Harry,' cried his father, "'do you want us all to break our necks on the way back to the cottage?' Harry did not answer. He wondered if he ought to suspect the hand of a mysterious being in this last accident. Could there possibly exist in these depths an enemy whose unaccountable antagonism would one day create serious difficulties? Had someone an interest in defending the new coal field against any attempt at working it? In truth, that seemed absurd, yet the facts spoke for themselves, and they accumulated in such a way as to change simple presumptions into certainties. In the meantime, the explorer's situation was bad enough, they had now, in the midst of black darkness, to follow the passage leading to the Dockhart pit for nearly five miles. There, they would still have an hour's walk before reaching the cottage. Come along, said Simon Ford. We have no time to lose. We must grope our way along like blind men. There's no fear of losing our way. The tunnels which open off our road are only just like those in a molehill, and by following the chief gallery, we shall, of course, reach the opening we got in at. After that, it is the old mine. We know that. And it won't be the first time that Harry and I have found ourselves there in the dark. Besides, there we shall find the lamps that we left. Forward, then, Harry. Go first. Mr. Starr, follow him. Madge, you go next, and I will bring up the rear. Above everything... Don't let us get separated. All complied with the old overman's instructions. As he said, by groping carefully, they could not mistake the way. It was only necessary to make the hands take the place of the eyes and to trust to their instinct, which had, with Simon Ford and his son, become a second nature. James Starr and his companions walked on in the order agreed. They did not speak but it was not for want of thinking. It became evident that they had an adversary. But what was he, and how were they to defend themselves against these mysteriously prepared attacks? These disquieting ideas crowded into their brains. However, this was not the moment to get discouraged. Harry, his arms extended, advanced with a firm step, touching first one and then the other side of the passage. If a cleft or side opening presented itself, he felt with his hand that it was not the main way. Either the cleft was too shallow or the opening too narrow, and thus he kept in the right road. In darkness, 
through which the eye could not in the slightest degree pierce, this difficult return lasted two hours. By reckoning the time since they started, taking into consideration that the walking had not been rapid, Starr calculated that he and his companions were near the opening. In fact, almost immediately, Harry stopped. "'Have we got to the end of the gallery?' asked Simon Ford. "'Yes,' answered the young miner. "'Well, have you not found the hole which connects New Aberfoyle with the Dockhart pit?' "'No,' replied Harry, whose impatient hands met with nothing but a solid wall. The old overman stepped forward, and himself felt the schistous rock. A cry escaped him. Either the explorers had strayed from the right path on their return, or the narrow orifice, broken in the rock by the dynamite, had been recently stopped up. James Starr and his companions were prisoners in New Aberfoyle. End of chapter 8 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas